0: Hello and welcome back to Wolfie's Art Adventure. Today's adventures will be the continuation into ancient Egyptian art. But well, the first one was talking about the little history of the art. This one is going to go more into the characteristics and what materials were used and all that fun jazz for all the people at the time and what it meant. So first is the characteristics. If you were to look at any of the art from this part of history, you would see that there was a certain way of drawing, painting, or even carving the figures of that time. If the person wasn't sitting, then the legs were always parted, the heads were always shown from the side, and the torso was seen from the front. The use of the standard set of proportions that made up the figure were using 18 quote-unquote bits to go from the ground where the feet were to the hairline of the forehead. The figure that is known to be the first to establish these characteristics come from the Narmer Palette from the First Dynasty. Though all of these characteristics were used for those of higher standards, like kings, queens, people of Egypt, and not for those that society didn't deem worthy, such as corpses and captives and slaves and all that fun jazz. So some of the conventions that were made, like statues, painted men darker than women, though I find that slightly sexist, but hey, I can't say much, I'm too white. They would literally have to paint me white because I am too light for them. <laughs> but by the 2nd din- dynasty, every conventionalized portrait statue started appearing. This came with the exception from Armana and Akhenaten and the 12th dynasty periods, because apparently they didn't do that. And then throughout the timeline of all the art done from the rulers, many features didn't change much until the Greek conquest. The art also portrayed the class system meaning where the king or pharaoh were usually larger than the rest of those portrayed since they were seen to be well, the ones closest to the gods. Then came the figures of the higher of officials and tomb owners. The ones that were the smallest were servants, entertainers, animals, trees, and any architectural details. This was to remind everyone who was in charge and to help keep the order in the way. Now they may have had a written language through hieroglyphics, but it was not known by others. So the language was shown by the colors You, in Each color had a term. Some of the terms were for more than one color. Disclaimer, I am sorry if I mess up these words because I know me and I probably am. So the first was Chem. And this term was meant for black. And black was used for royal figures only. And it was also associated with the afterlife and was the color of funerary deities. Next was hedge. This is literally spelt H-E-D-J. I'm assuming that's how it is said. Uh this one had the color associations of silver. Silver, or as it was commonly known then, white gold, was associated with the bones of the god. Uh that one i'll get into a little bit deeper and it also relates with metal and i talk about metals way later don't worry i'm not just skipping third was wedge literally w-e-d-j again i am sorry if messing up these words. This was associated with blue and green. Blue is commonly associated with fertility, birth, and life-giving waters of the Nile, while both were then more associated with vegetation and rejuvenation. Kind of why Osiris is shown to have a greenish blue coloring for skin. It also explained why in the 26th Dynasty, faces of coffins were often colored green, because this was meant to help in the rebirth of those who had that coloring on coffin it also helped bringing in the popularity of turquoise and i don't know if i'm saying this word right but faience f-a-i-e-n-c-e this was put on funerary equipment again this word faience is a glazed ceramic ware it was in particular decorated tin glazed earthenware that included Delftware and mialika. Again, I'm sorry if I'm messing up these words. Last but not least was Desher, which were for red, yellow, and orange. These last three colors were used as ambivalent colors. They naturally associated with the sun. Red stones like quartzites were popular for royal statues, which stressed how close the pharaoh was to the sun god. Carnelian had a similar symbolic association in Jewel. If you were important to pharaoh or high officials and your name was written in red to show you were important. And we can't forget that red was a big indicator for the deserts, which was associated with the god of the deserts and outsiders. Now for the materials. The most common material used was, well, wood. Due to its relatively poor survival, it was not particularly well represented. They've used the trees that were native to the region, such as like date palm and gone palm trunks, that were used as joists in buildings as as well as being split to produce plants. tamarisk, acacia, and sycamore fig trees were used to manufacture furniture. Ash was too poor of a quality to really be used for really much of anything. Finer varieties had to be imported especially from a place called Levant. Next in the materials were glass and faience, again. I know I said earlier what it was, but I didn't give in too much detail about it. Fiance were made from silica and found in forms of quartz and sand, limestone, and natron. Those who don't know what natron is, it is a mineral salt found in dried lake beds consisting of hydrated sodium carbon. They were produced to be very cheap and very attractive small. Objects. glass goes back to a very early point of egyptian history at first it was considered a luxury material later on it became a bit more well common it was used for highly decorated jars of perfume and other liquids as grave goods and another material used at this time was diatite diatite is a talc metamorphic rock it is also known as soapstone no not not the soap that you use to wash your hands with because I don't think that's what they use the then for and I don't think we use stone to wash our hands. But if you thought that could try. This material was carved into small pieces of vases, amulets, images of animals, etc. Enamel like tooth enamel, bone enamel. I don't know why we would use enamel, but hey, we use enamel then. But yes, enamel was also used by artists to cover pottery. One of the first Colored stone used in Egypt was with lapis lazuli, very awesome-looking gemstone. I, I say so. I really like blue, and I like that lapis lazuli is blue. And it was a very expensive and highly regarded gemstone material. The pigment was widely used to color a variety of materials. I'll go into more detail later on with that too, since again, it's a whole section on there on its own. One such color the Egyptians liked to use was the Egyptian blue. Egyptian blue was related to but was very distinct from faience and glass. It was also called frit. The hue of the Egyptian blue comes from quartz, alkali, lime, and one more type of coloring agent. These components would then be heated together until they fused to become a crystalline mass. From there, it would be worked by hand or pressed into molds to make statues, statues, or other smaller objects. It can also be grounded to make a Hignan. It first became attested in the 4th dynasty, and then became more popular in the Ptolemaic and Roman period. Then it was known as Cerulean, so when you think of Cerulean blue, it's really just Egyptian blue. Beat that. I don't know what Cerulean blue is, but you know, like I said, Egyptian blue. Now, the metals! Although Egypt wasn't the leading center of metallurgy, they did develop technology from extracting and processing most metals, within and on their own borders, as well as neighboring lands. First on the list of metals used was, well, copper copper was the first metal to be exploited. Small beads of copper were found in Spadarian graves. Larger items were produced in later pre-dynastic periods. They were made by a combination of mold casting, annealing, and cold hammering. Now, I'm not an expert on anything when it comes to smelting or any of the terminology, but I'm going to guess that the process is melting the material down to a really hot goop then putting it into a mold, then shaping it to whatever extra shapes I would need if I didn't have a certain mold for it, and then to put it into cold water. I'm assuming, mainly because I like watching those cool metal bending videos on Facebook that show me how to make a dragon, even though I'm never going to make a dragon, because I'm not doing that with glass. I'm assuming, like I said. So after that, the production of copper had peaked during the Old Kingdom period. During this time, a huge number of copper chisels were manufactured to cut stone blocks for the pyramids. Oh, fun. The pyramids. There were also statues of Pepi and Merenre from Hierakonpolis. I'm going to say that's how it is. And they are rare survivors of large-scale metal workings. The next metal that was used was gold the gold treasure that was found in Tutankhamun's tomb came to symbolize wealth in ancient Egypt. It illustrated importance in the pharaonic culture. Burial chambers in a royal tomb was soon called the House of Gold. If you can recall when I had said that silver was seen as the quote-unquote bones of the gods, well, gold was known to be the skin of the gods since it was a shining metal that never tarnished. This ideal material was used for cult images of deities, royal funerary equipment, and to add brilliance, to the top of obelisk. It was also used extensively for jewelry, kind of like how rappers tend to wear chains of gold around their necks to show how wealthy they are, or to be distributed to officials as rewards for the loyal services. Now it comes the opposite of gold, well, silver! As previously stated, it is seen as the bone of the gods! Who knew? It's like the third time I've said that now. But in order to get the precious metal, it needed to be imported from Levant. Its rarity initially gave it a greater value than gold. Early workings of silver included bracelets of Hedafris. During the period of the Middle Kingdom, it became more widely tested and it seemed to have become less valuable than gold. Silver jewelry that was dated back in the 12th dynasty period were made for the female members of the royal family were found in Dashur and Lahun. Next on the list is iron. This was the last metal to be exploited on a large scale. Meteoritic iron was used for manufacturing of beads that date back to the Badarian period, but it wasn't until the late period that the technology to smelt iron was introduced. Before that, iron objects were imported, which consequently made it highly valued for its rarity. There were Armana letters that referred to diplomatic gifts of iron being sent from the Near Eastern rulers, mainly between the Hittite and Amenhotep III and Akhenaten. Tools and weapons made from iron became really common during the Roman period. As mentioned before lapis lazuli is a dark blue semi-precious stone that was highly valued in the egyptian society it has symbolic association with the heaven it needed to be imported via long distance trade routes from mountains of northeast afghanistan the metal was considered superior to all the other materials except gold and silver it was first attested in pre-dynastic period it was mainly used for jewelry small figures and other materials that were used were jasper serpentine steatite and turquoise jasper is an impure form of chalcedony and with patches of red green, or yellow where red equaled the symbol of life and positive aspects red jasper was used above all others to make amulets with the titite or knot of ice's amulet which was Specified in the spell 156 from the Book of the Dead. Green jasper was rarely used since they were used mainly for scarabs, specifically the heart of the scarabs. Why that needed to be green, I don't understand. I don't know if they dissected a scarab back then, but if they did, then I don't believe it was green. But hey, they did their thing. Serpentine is the generic term for the hydrated silicate of magnesium that makes up the material come from the Eastern Desert. comes in many shades of color, ranging from pale green to a dark color that almost resembles black. It had been used from the earliest time of the Egyptian timeline and was used specifically for making scarab hearts. Again, why are we making scarab hearts? I don't understand, but again, I am not the one who made this. Theotite, also known as soapstone, is a mineral of the chlorite family. In simpler words, it was easy to work with. It was used throughout all the periods of ancient Egypt. Turquoise is an opaque stone, and its coloring is somewhere between sky blue to a blue-green. It is a natural basic aluminum phosphate colored blue by some traces of copper. It was closely linked to the goddess Hathor. Turquoise was extracted mainly from the mines in Sinai at Serabit el-Kadam. Now, what I deem to be a fun way of showing that you are an artist, painting. As much as I love painting, I know not many have that same opinion, and well, neither did the Egyptians. I mean, I can't really blame them since the materials that made up their paint was made from many minerals that could withstand the strong sunlight without fading. And because of this, not all the reliefs were painted. There was a certain procedure that needed to be done before they could paint. That process goes as follows. Stones needed to be prepared with whitewash. If the stone was rough, then a layer of coarse mud plaster with a smoother, gesso layer was put down. Pigments needed to be grinded down and have a binding medium used. Though what that medium was, no one knows for sure. Paint was then applied to the dry plaster. After that, a varnish or resin was usually applied to help as a protective coating. Paintings were often used with the intent of making the afterlife pleasant for the deceased. As said earlier, paintings had shown animals and people alike in a side view to help with making sure every part of the body was able to make it through the afterlife. From there, we get into sculpting. I can't say I have any real intentions on doing sculpturing in my near future, but I can say that I enjoy seeing the great art pieces that come from those that do, seeing as how a lot of what was represented from the ancient civilization came from the monumental sculptures of temples and tombs. The most commonly used technique was the sunk relief. This technique is seen from the time of Akhenaten. is where the sculptures look to be 3D since they were carved into it. It was a great way to be viewed in sunlight for the outline since the forms were emphasized by the shadows the distinctive pose of standing was helpful for balance and strength of the piece sitting was another common pose statues that were made were for the pharaohs and made them larger than the god a known sculpture that is made and those exist to this day the Great Sphinx. It was never replicated. I mean, I can see why. And it it's such a great sculpture, but I don't believe there was enough material to make another one. Many small statues were made, but they were mainly made for the tombs, since early tombs had small statues of slaves and animals for the deceased to continue the lifestyle in the afterlife. So, no, no real slaves were killed or buried alive with the pharaoh after he died they figured you know that'd be a lot of people dying not okay (laughs) so the statues came if you wanted an expensive statue then you would commission someone to use alabaster a common relief sculpture was to show the difference between men and women women were represented in a more idealistic way such as young and pretty not many showed women in older maturity types of ways since society didn't view women as old like you could not get old if being a woman? You had to be young and beautiful, always in your prime, because apparently we never evolved from that. Not at all. For the men, they were shown in either an idealistic manner of a more ideal, they were pretty much more idealistic. than So where they showed women in their prime, they showed men in both their prime or age. Regeneration for men was seen as a positive, while women were just shown in a perpetual beauty. Again, we don't have that at all. Not today. If you can't catch on to my sarcasm, I'm sorry. That's it was all sarcastic. It was all very sarcastic. I don't know many or any of you remember me saying this, but if you were to go back to the prehistoric episode, I know you will hear me mention something about how we create things of what we see as beautiful. Now, being a female, I don't know if I would take this as a compliment or an insult or both. I see why they would want women to be in a perpetual state of beauty? Because who wouldn't, honestly? But to see women growing old and thinking that it's a negative? I just don't know since I'm not from that era, but I do have that type of thinking. But I do not have that type but it is nice to see that the Egyptians viewed viewed this as a necessity for their lifestyle. Another way of making sculptures were stelae. I'm probably saying this wrong. Stelae was an upright tablet of stone or wood. It often had a curved top and it was painted or carved with text and pictures. These were used as early as the first dynasty. These bore the names and titles of the deceased. The basic form of the stelae evolved into a key component of the funerary equipment with a magical function. There were many types of stie, like the votive, which was inscribed with prayers to deities and were dedicated by worshippers, seeking favorable outcomes to particular situations. There's also the ear, which were inscribed with images of, well, human ears, to encourage the deity to listen to prayers or requests. These were really common in the New Kingdom period. Then there was the commemorative stelae. They were produced for notable achievements, like the restoration stelae of King Tut, to celebrate military victories, or the Israel stelae of Merneptah, which was to establish frontiers, and the Sumna stelae of Sunset III. Another type of sculpture made for pyramidion. These were capstones at the very top of the pyramids. They were also called Ben Benet in the ancient Egyptian language. Ben Benets associated the pyramids as a whole with a sacred Ben Ben stone. It may have been covered in gold leaf to reflect rays of the sun. They were also inscribed with royal titles and religious symbols of the Middle Kingdom period. Another form of art that helps us know a culture's way of life is pottery. Many pottery items were found in tombs of the dead. They came in various sizes and shapes. Some represented interior parts of the body. One jar would be for each of the fallen organs in the body, lungs, liver, and the smaller intestine. All of the organs were removed before the embalming of the body, if my memory is correct. I think I remember a social studies teacher telling me, or reading that the brains were pulled out through the nose. If that is true, then I don't remember the reason as to why they did that. Other pottery made were more for the other things in life, like holding any type of alcohol they stored, or for plants, or any other mundane reason, anyone would have a piece of pottery for. Next is the amazing artwork of the architecture from this era. Sun-dried and kiln-baked bricks. Fine sandstone, limestone, and granite were all materials used for making these beautiful pieces. Everything was carefully planned by the architects. Amazingly enough, no mud or mortar was used, so every brick was made to fit like a game of Tetris. Really awesome game of Tetris. Once everything was up, the architects would then start decorating everything from top to bottom taking the ramp down along the way. There were some small openings on the exterior walls of the pyramid. All the hieroglyphics and pictorial carvings were done in brilliant colors. The hieroglyphs would describe what changes the pharaoh would go through to become a god. The pictorials were of scarabs, sacred beetles, at least one solar disk, and vultures. Now we move to jewelry. It tended to exhibit a love of ornament and personal decorations. That came from the pre-dynastic periods. Burials during the Badarian period often contained strings of beads. The materials used were glazed steatite, shell, ivory, gold, silver, copper, and shell. These were all during the pre-dynastic period. More varied materials were introduced after the first dynasty. During the Old Kingdom, a combination of carnelian, turquoise, and lapis lazuli were brought into the mix. It helped establish that what jewelry was meant for the royals. This also became a standard in the milking of Jewelry that was made for the quote-unquote less sophisticated were of bone, cowrie shells, and mother of pearl. Some popular pieces consisted of bead necklaces, bracelets, armlets, and girdles. In the basic term, a girdle is a belt. Oh, my next favorite thing that I totally do not suck in, fashion. The art that was created for the clothes worn during this time are often shown with reflective, tight-fitting dresses that were for men, women, and children. It may have been for the whole purpose of just showing off their figures, kinda like what we still do to this day, and just like today, there were different clothing worn for different seasons of the year, as well as a difference in material used to show which part of society one was from. For the general population, clothing was very simple, mainly made out of linen, and either the color was white or an offset white coloring. Men would have typically worn a simple loin cloth or a shindite, kind of like a short kilt. During the Middle Kingdom, a longer, more voluminous clothing came into appearance. Then, by the late 18th Dynasty and Ramesside period, robes came that were flowing, and they were elaborately pleated, and diaphanous became popular for men and women. Wearing decorated textiles on the clothing became popular during the New Kingdom period. That was for the men. For the women, dresses had been enhanced by a colorful bead netting that was worn over the top of any of the styles throughout the different periods. During the Roman period, it had become known for manufacturing of lined clothing. For their footwear, it was just sandals made of leather or basketry. Another sense of life that I definitely fail at is makeup. Now I'm the worst when it comes to anything that deals with makeup. I still remember when we had to use our fingertips to apply most of the makeup that was worn at the time. Nowadays we have brushes and weird, thing. I don't know, I don't know any of the applicators, I just know brushes, and I don't know how to do any of that. As for the Egyptians, it was a part of the culture since the pre-dynastic period. The eye paint, that was called whole, was applied to protect the eyes from the environment, and it was made from galena, which was a bluish-gray or black mineral of metallic appearance, consisting of lead sulfide, which was the chief ore of, well, lead. During the old kingdom, green eye paint was used and it was made from malachite. This was a bright green mineral that consisted of copper hydroxyl carbonate. It typically occurs in masses and fibrous aggregates with azurite and is capable of taking a high polish. For the lips, a rouge made from the red ochre was used for painted lips and cheeks. Henna was used to dye hair, fingernails, and toenails. Creams and unguents that were used to help condition the skin were made from various plant extracts. Now all of our favorite type of art and music. Without music, can life really be interesting? I mean, we all listen to different types of genres out there, and we all pretend that these songs are the background music to our own little movies about life. And I'm going to go on a limb by saying that this podcast may have gotten a bit better with the addition to the music playing in the background. Just as we do know, they played music for any important parts of the celebration, though it was mainly instruments like castanets, flutes, drums, and harps. For anyone who doesn't know what a castanet is, it is a small, concave piece of wood, ivory, or plastic, joined in pairs by a cord and clicked together by the fingers. It is normally known nowadays as an instrument that accompanies Spanish dancing. Then lyres and lutes were introduced from the Levant. Sheets of music weren't attested until early Ptolemaic period, though groups of musicians weren't popular until the Old Kingdom. These groups were made of either mixed genders or just females. Another type of instrument was the sistrum. Sistra, were rattles, that were used more in religious ceremonies such as temple rituals. These were usually played by only women. and is also known as a sesh-esh-t-, seshesht, I can't say this word, Sesh-sehet. The name of this instrument imitates the swishing sound that the small discs made when it was shaken. It was closely associated with Hathor in her role as the quote-unquote Lady of Music. The handle was often decorated with Hathor's head. There were two kinds known of this instrument, the naus shape which was shaped like a temple or shrine, and the hoop shape which was the more common of the two used. Now we're getting into the funerary art. This consisted of coffins, canopic jars, masks, and ushabti. Coffins came into use during the first dynasty. They were a simple rectangular wooden box commonly known as lord of life. The primary function was to provide a home for the of the deceased and to protect the physical body from harm. In the 4th dynasty, longer coffins were developed. This was to allow the body to be buried fully extended. This became customary so that the body could lay on its side by the end of the old kingdom. The side of the coffin that faced east was decorated with a pair of eyes so the deceased could look towards the rising sun which brought the promise of daily rebirth. During the first intermediate period, decorated coffins became a substitute for tomb decoration. During the Middle Kingdom, text on the coffins made its first appearance. It was sometimes with details on maps of the underworld and its number of distinct regional styles. The Theban era, or the late 17th and early 18th dynasties, characteristics anthropoid rishi, feathered coffins, were produced. These were replaced with other anthropoid styles that became the standard from throughout the country for the remainder of the history. During the New Kingdom, the predominance of tombs already decorated removed the object friezes. Coffins were generally undecorated on the inside, though it was all reversed on the Third Intermediate Period. When this happened, the decoration of the coffins focused on the Osiris myth and the extracts from the Book of the Dead, which was to aid resurrection of the deceased. During the Ptolemaic and Roman periods, coffins were replaced completely for cartonage masks that were fixed onto the mummy wrappings. If coffins were made, it was out of wood. Anyone of high standing used fine quality imported cedar wood. From the Middle Kingdom and on, wealthy individuals were often provided with a set of two or three nested coffins. Most of the coffins were made with glass or precious stones, while the royal coffins were made from gold or silver. Now this was all for once. They were done with taking out certain parts of the body of the deceased. This is where the canopic jars come in. These jars were the internal organs. These jars were where the internal organs were stored. The jars were named after the human-headed jars that were worshipped as a personification of Canopus by inhabitants of the ancient Canopus. This practice of evisceration was first attested in burial of Hetapherus in the early 4th dynasty. The organs were stored in Travertine. Travertine was a white or light-colored calcareous rock that was deposited for mineral in springs. The organs that were taken out were the liver, stomach, lung, testa. These were the four organs that were harvested. Each organ was provided with a separate jar of either stone or pottery and then placed under a symbolic protection of one of the four sons of Horus. During the first or intermediate pack period, the stoppers on the jars began to be modeled in the form of human heads. Then in the late 18th dynasty, it became more commonly modeled to resemble heads of protecting J- jenny jenny is the most plural it's just the plural form of genie these heads were either of a baboon jackal falcon or human this became a normal in the 19th dynasty for the head of the jars by the third intermediate period the mummified organs were originally returned during this time dummy jars were made for the royals so that those who wanted to steal the organs for whatever purpose got nothing Manufacturing of the jars continued into the Ptolemic period, but died out during the Roman period. Neck the masks. Now these masks were used in all the periods of this era. The purpose was to transform the wearer into a mortal being, from a mortal being into a divine being. This was also the same throughout all periods of time for the ancient Egyptians. Not all the masks were the same, however. Most were made of gold. Then in the Roman period there were portraits of the deceased. The last piece of funerary art were the Ushabadi. The Ushabadi were also known as either Sha'wap or Sha'a. These were just funerary figurines whose purpose was to act as a substitute for the deceased when called upon to perform agricultural work or cover labor in the afterlife. These evolved into the Middle Kingdom from servant statues that were included with the funerary god. The earliest examples of these figurines were crude statues made of wax, clay, or wood. Later on, they were fashioned as mummification figures, and in the end of the 12th dynasty, were customarily inscribed with an Ushabadi text, which comes from the sixth chapter of the Book of the Day that has specifics of the Ushabadi's duties. And there you have it, the last part of the adventure into the art of ancient Egypt. If you like this episode and want to listen to more, you can hear me on other platforms other than Anchor, like Google Podcasts, Apple, podcast, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Links to each of these will be provided in the description below, whether you are listening to this as a podcast or watching this as a video. Also, I can assume that you guys can hear that I am still sick. This is kind of why I haven't been able to record as of late, as well as, well, the holidays came and went, and they were very busy times for me. I'm very sorry if you have been listening since the very beginning, or if you are new, and you realize that this is a very, very late recording, but I thank you for your patience, and hopefully none of you, or all of you, have not given up on this podcast. I hope that since it is now, 2020, make a new schedule, or even make a schedule now, to uh, actually keep up with... my recording and editing of everything so i hope you enjoyed it if so like i said you can follow me on all these things or listen to me in anywhere else and i shall see you guys in the next adventure